and joy to praise you. For you have given us not just so much, you have given us everything. And so what a privilege to give back to you a portion of all that you have given to us. Use these gifts, these offerings, these tithes, Father, for the extension of your kingdom, for the good of your people, and for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would remain standing, and again, it's a pleasure to welcome our friend Mike Glodo back to the pulpit. Thank you, Zach, and it is a pleasure to be with you again. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I had told Minda I would read three verses, but I'll read four. Um, Hear the Word of God found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Please be seated. And now that we have heard the word of God read, I ask you to join me in your hearts in prayer to ask God to make this word lively to us. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes, quicken our hearts, show us how we must respond to this word of yours, because your words are life. To whom shall we go? And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Probably some Sunday lunches are planned. It reminds me of a woman who's a friend of Vicky and me, and for years when she cooked a beef roast, she would cut off the end of the beef roast, just like her mother did, and roast it accordingly. And finally, after years, she asked her mother, why do you always cut off the end of the roast before you cook it? And she said, well, I never had a pan big enough for the whole roast, and that's why I did it. It had nothing to do with the recipe, as she found out. Um, It just goes to show you we learn a lot of things by imitation. We learn a lot of things by habit because people are social animals. We were made to be in relationships with one another, and we will learn life by watching others live it. Uh, And this is even true for the most independent and uh, individualistic thinker you can imagine because he or she is living their life in relation or in reaction to the way others live it. The Apostle Paul understands that we are social animals. And he was concerned that the believers in Colossae were rehabituating themselves to the things from which they had been freed by the gospel. That the gospel had set them free from feudal ways of living, Uh, And they had believed the gospel with enthusiasm when they first heard it. And yet, teachers were coming in, uh, not simply uh, teaching them uh, the gospel, in fact, teaching them something different from the gospel, uh, 
a philosophy that mingled perhaps biblical truth with, uh, with life philosophies, even with pagan religions, that caused a poisonous stew to be the things they were learning. Paul calls it human tradition back in chapter 2. And by following that, that poisonous stew of, of, of teaching, they were experiencing powerlessness, uh, they were being blinded to the ways of God, and in fact, the ways of the world were leading them toward disaster. And so Paul writes this letter to the church at Colossae to lead them back to God's way of doing things so that they might experience all the hope and the joy and the fullness of life that the gospel had offered them. And so when we look at this for ourselves this morning, we're reminded by these verses in Colossians that we're supposed to always live life, as the sermon title says, quorum Deo, which means before God. But the fact is we live in a world where we tend toward living, as it says, quorum homo, or before man. So these four verses from Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, which is at the heart of this letter, lead us back to thinking in a way that we will live always in the presence of God rather than live with other people as our prime audience, as our prime family. Uh, in, a, in a world which tempts us to live before men rather than to live before God, Paul offers us a reminder of what living before God always is to be so that we won't experience the kind of powerlessness, futility, and purposelessness that the world would lead us to live. Uh, we see he, he, he offers it, first of all, by reminding them of the new life, the new life which is theirs in Christ. He begins with this if-then statement in verse 1, and it's a conditional sentence, but it's it's a condition that is assumed to be true in light of all that Paul has said and all that they have believed. This new life is, if then you've been raised with Christ. Notice how Paul is describing being raised with Christ as a present reality. Because God has given us a new life now. There will be a resurrection from the dead when all who have trusted in Christ will be raised bodily to a new life. But Paul is saying that new life has begun now. If then you have been raised with Christ is an assumed condition that he's laying out here. And it's based on the fact of what he has described back in chapter 2. Two things have happened. We have died and we have been raised. If you go back to chapter 2, you'll see it uh, in, uh, in verse 12. Uh, Having been buried with him in baptism... And in baptism, we enact what it means to come to faith in Christ. That is, we die to self because Christ has died for us. Earlier, uh, he said that the certificate of debt that we owed God because of our sin has been nailed to the cross, and we've been reconciled to God because we have died to self. That is, when Christ died, those who put their faith in Christ also ceased to live that old life. But then, not only have they died to Christ, but then by, they have been raised to Christ. And so Paul says the same thing to us as well. In verse 12 of chapter 2, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised. You know, a, a baptism that doesn't include a resurrection is called a drowning. But in Christian baptism, we enact our death in Christ, Christ paying for our sins, reconciling us to God, and then coming out of the waters, we come into a new life. It is our resurrection in this life now. So the result is we have a new life, a a life that proceeds from an, an imperishable principle, a life that cannot be destroyed, a life that cannot end because Christ was raised to eternal life so we are raised to, uh, to life in Him. This is the new life which has been given us because we are with Christ, Paul says. We are even seated with Christ, which sounds like very strange language when we're still here on earth, but because we are united to Christ by faith, we've not only been raised already, but we've been seated at the right hand of God. This is our new address because it is the address of the new life, which is in Christ. And to, 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 to not fall back into the world's ways, we have to be reminded of this new life, but also the death which was preceded it. Christ's death for us so that we have died and now we have been raised in Christ and we own this new life now. I heard the story some years ago, General Westmoreland, who was the theater commander during the Vietnam War. And the story was that whenever his uh, troops arrived in country, the first thing he would have them do would be to write their obituaries. I even heard that commanders in Afghanistan and Iraq require the same thing of their troops. Why would he do that? Because he believed that when a soldier resigned himself to his own death, then he could fight. Then he could live without self-protection being his obsession. He could live for those around him. He could be a good comrade in arms. And he could be an effective fighting force. And you see, that's where the gospel leads us. We have died in Christ, so anything pertaining to the old life is of no interest to us now. The challenge is just learning to believe that and learning to act upon it, that all our old interests are as nothing to us because we've been given these new interests, this new life. The resurrection has come to us in the present so that We not only will be raised from the dead bodily one day, but we can live now as new people with this new life. But it's not just a new life that Paul describes here, it's a new future. He says in verse 4 that if we live this way, that when Christ, who is your life, if you've forgotten it in three verses, who is your life, when he appears then you will also appear with him in glory. This is not simply the resurrection from the dead, but it is uh, all that the Scriptures promise us as future. Uh, One word in which you can wrap this all up is hope, the Christian hope. Because when we have this new life, we have this new hope, this new future. We can live for the long term and not just for the short term. I sat down with a retirement planner this week, and I went over all of our retirement assets, such as they are, and he said, you're not doing too bad, you just keep working toward your goal, and then I mentioned, by the way, 
there is an inheritance that might come to us. And in fact, he, he said, how much? And I said, well, it could be more than everything else you just saw on paper. And he said, now that's a game changer. Now, a game changer is a little bit of information that makes everything look different. I like game changers, as it turns out. And Paul is saying this new life in Christ, having died in Him, having been raised with Him, and having been seated at the right hand of God with Him, that is a game changer because it is a future that is so certain, so glorious. So much to be desired. What does the hymn say? When the things of earth, when we, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now, the Bible says that when we see Him, we shall be like Him. And that work has already begun now. And Paul says the the power to keep living forward, to keep thinking God's thoughts, to keep living God's ways. To not be drawn back into old ways and old patterns and old habits, and in fact drawn back into the old person who has died, is to set our sights on this inheritance. In Ephesians, Paul says, by the way, God's given you a little down payment on this inheritance, and it's the Holy Spirit, which is the whole thing, <laughs> because it's God Himself. God doesn't give us a little bit now, and then give us the best later, He's already given us the best. He's already given us Himself in the Holy Spirit. And even Paul said it in Romans 8, if He didn't spare His own Son, how much will He not give us all things in Him? So we've gotten the best part first. My uh, former colleague Steve Brown is known for eating his dessert before he eats his main meal. And when he's asked about it, he says, at my age, you're never sure whether you're going to make it to dessert. <laughs> but you see, there's a little different reason here. God has given us the best portion first, and so everything else will follow. A new future. What is hidden now, as Christ hidden in the heavenly places, what is hidden now will one day be revealed, and every eye will behold Him. And every knee will bow. Because as Paul has said in chapters 1 and 2, that Christ is the fullness of God all in all. He is the preeminent one. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one and only true Lord. And so when we think about wandering, when we think about eating that poisonous stew, when we think about the ways which we get drawn into the, the, the ways of uh, things on earth, as he says in these verses. We're told that all will be made known, all will be clear in the end. But not only will, be he, will he be revealed, that who we truly are now will be revealed. We will be revealed as God's glorious children on the last day. But it is true now, you see. So the future doesn't just stand off waiting for us to come to it. Paul says the future has come to us now in what God has done for us in Christ and where He has brought us to the Father's right hand. But it's not just a new life and a new future that will help us 
to live free from the entanglements of the world, free from the habits and the patterns that have been imprinted upon us by our past and by the world around us. It's not just a new life and a new future, but Paul says the way we get there is through a new mind. Paul says in verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your mind on the things that are above that are already true because of Christ's work and not on the things that are on earth. Now, don't misunderstand Paul here. Paul is not making some kind of a binary distinction between physical earthly life and spiritual heavenly life. What this language here of things above and things below is pointing to here is there is a way, there is a plane on which people think. There's a plane on which we live life by observation and by experience. But then there are God's ways. What does Isaiah say? Your ways are not my ways, nor your thoughts my thoughts. It's not just talking about the sin distinction. It's talking about the distinction between the earthly way of doing things and God's way of doing things. And we're to set our minds on the things which are above, not on the things that are on earth, so that we can experience the fullness of the life which Christ has brought us now. We experience this new life. We live out the hope of the new future by setting our minds on the things above. Now, this is not simply a cognitive thing. And we have to really make sure we understand that, especially in a tradition where we have such glorious theology and where we uh, have such a high priority on knowledge of the Bible and knowledge of the doctrine. This is not simply a cognitive solution. We're not simply computers that need a new software program uploaded. We're not machines. We are creatures of loves, creatures of affections, creatures of habits. David Foster Wallace, the late David Foster Wallace, I think once said about his experience in a recovery program, he says, my best thinking got me here. You see, our best thinking doesn't make a difference in our lives unless our loves, our affections, or I'll use the word this morning, our mindfulness, because that's what Paul is calling for here. Not simply a new knowledge, but a mindfulness, an attendance a thoughtfulness, a reflection upon life's new order, the things that are true because of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the habituation of our affections, the orientation of our loves. The Old Testament tends to use the word heart, not in exclusion of the mind, but the heart as both the will, the affections, and the knowledge that we have. Now, the New Testament tends to use the word mind, as the same concept. So think that heart in the Old Testament and mind in the New Testament are roughly the same context because it's not mere cognitive knowledge that we are to have to guide our lives, but it is a mindfulness, an attentiveness to the ways of God. The rest of the letter will go on and flesh that out for us. How we're to put off the old self and put on the new self and how it's to change all our relationships. If you start reading from verse 18 and through the end of the letter, you see it's a rehabituation of our affections. Have you ever been the, or I should say, been subjected to a homemade remedy? Uh, my grandmother uh, had many home remedies. 
Uh, my mother, only verse she had underlined in her Bible because she was raised when you didn't write in her Bibles, but the only underlining in her whole Bible after she passed a couple years ago, I went through and I, and I found it was one of the kings of Israel. It said he sought the help of physicians and did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So that was her home remedy. Don't go to a doctor. But I think of a dear friend of mine whose wife has been into alternative therapies, and there are many values. This is not a commentary on that. There are many values to uh, alternative ways of treating medical problems, and thankfully we're recognizing that more and more. But she is so devoted to these remedies as her worldview, if you will, now that she has stage 4 cancer, she refuses to be treated by cancer therapies. And my friend is at his wit's end because he has tried to prevail upon her. He thinks of how he's going to miss her if the inevitable happens. And yet her mind will not be changed because she. this is her life narrative. It's her meta-narrative, philosophers might say. It's the, it's the story by which she lives her life. And you see, this was the Colossians' problem. They were, they were receptive to the gospel. They received the gospel with joy, but it needed a little bit of ingredients from mystery religions. It needed a little bit of Old Testament law, which was no longer binding upon them any longer in the new age of the new covenant in Christ. My grandma believed bacon fat and prayer took off warts. But let me ask you this, would you get on a homemade airplane? Or would you stand under a homemade uh, radiation x-ray therapy machine? There are some things that really expose the fallacies of the ways we've been raised, so to speak. And the fact is that uh, life is full of narratives, full of stories that reinforce ways of thinking, even when we're not conscious of it. And this was the Colossians' problem. They were, they were falling back into the ways of the Gentiles, the ways of their forefathers, the ways of the Old Testament. They were falling back into those ways out of habit with the assistance of teachers, and they didn't even know what they were doing because it seemed such an easy blend of Bible and tradition. Bible and folk tales, Bible and mysteries. The fact is we are surrounded by narratives that reinforce our ways of looking at things that will keep us from living out the new life and the new future that God has given us. And a recent book, some of us back at the seminary have been reading, it's called You Are What You Love, calls these things liturgies. Because the fact is, we're living in a world full of liturgies, full of stories that tell us the way the world goes. And those liturgies are the things that are on earth, not the things that are above. For instance, every, uh, every few years when the, the Muslim pilgrimage of Hajj uh, makes the news, we might read of people being trampled to death at Mecca or at Mina or some other holy site. And we think... How sad that is that people are so enslaved 
to a way of looking at the world and a way of looking at God that they end up trampling one another to get to death in this, for the sake of knowing God. And yet, we're getting used to, aren't we, that somebody's going to die in a Walmart every Black Friday. If we look around us, we can see the temples of those liturgies. All you have to go, all you have to do is look at the biggest buildings that people make, and you can tell what the temples are of those world liturgies, those things that are on earth. Banks, stadiums, shopping malls. These are the temples of the liturgies that shape our lives subconsciously for the most part. David Foster Wallace gave a commencement address at Kenyon College a number of years ago. And it, was, it was so profound that it went viral and it's been published as a book. But it begins with two young fish swimming along in the water. And an older fish swims the other way. And as he comes by, he says, how's the water, boys? And as he swims past, one of the young fish look at the other and say, what the heck is water? You see, and this is, this is how Paul is trying to open the minds of the believers at Colossae, open our minds, that there are stories which shape us. There are what someone has called sim gospels, because everybody's always got some good news for us about a car or about technology or about something that will truly make us happy. And yet, because they're based on repurchasing and upgrades and continued consumption, they have to actually plan in how they're not going to make us happy. I have a new iPhone in my pocket, and when I bought it, the next iPhone was already in planning. And I'm going to feel sad because I just have the next newest one pretty soon. You see, these are the liturgies that inhabit our lives And yet Paul says we need to have a a mindfulness set on the things that are above. And so one of the most wonderful ways in in which God does that is through his church. Twice Paul in this letter mentions Christ as the head of the church. Because as I said at the beginning, we are social animals. And we learn our patterns of living from one another. And from walking through those narratives together. Flannery O'Connor, in her short story, Good Man is Hard to Find, there was a, a woman in there that is said of her, she would have been a good woman if it had been there with somebody to shoot her every minute of her life. Meaning, she'd always do the right thing if somebody was watching. Well, that's not a very big compliment to that lady. But the truth is that God has given us a society in His church where we walk through the gospel story. We, we do it every Lord's Day. We come in and we praise God who is the maker of heaven and earth. We together remind ourselves that we are sinners and we plead upon Him again for His mercy. We confess our sins. We listen to Him through His Word because we know that His wisdom is the path toward blessedness and our highest happiness in life. We come to a table and it reminds us that when we come to this table, we eat together because we're part of that new 
society, that new nation, that new city which God is building. And we're also reminded in, in, the, in, in our doing it that we are one with God. We don't come to this table except for what Christ has done to give us himself to make us one with God. So, participating in the life of God's people, participating in the life of the church is the way in which that new story about our new life and our new future gets reinforced to us, habituated in us, so that we can know the full blessedness which God offers us in the gospel. I'm reminded even as it's Mother's Day and thinking about the church that we can truly say this, that even though not everyone can be a mother, everyone can have a mother. Because Paul describes the church of Jesus Christ as the mother of all who believe. It's not just right conduct, but it's a new creation in which we participate when we are mindful creatures. Both recognizing the lies, the sim gospels, the false gospels that the world is constantly offering us and constantly habituating us back toward and reorienting ourselves to the new life by mindfulness, by thinking about God, by putting our minds, by setting our minds on the things which are above. Because as we cultivate that new mindfulness with the liturgies that God has given us, we'll be disaffected. We'll find the things of earth grow strangely dim. Those old liturgies that bind us and disempower us and even lead to death. And we'll see the new story, the new liturgy of God's people celebrating life together, life with God, a new life, a new hope, and a new mind. William Shakespeare, in As You Like It, he wrote this. He said, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. We really all truly actors on a stage. Even when we're not pretending, we are performing. We're performing the liturgies of the world unless we have a better liturgy. Shakespeare concluded after he described the seven parts that we all play in life. He describes the last one, and it is like the first one, infancy. And of the second infancy, he says, last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, without teeth, without eyes, without tastes, without everything. And you see, this is the final stage of life for those who have no hope, for those who have not died in Christ and been raised with him. But the final stage of the life of the Christian has begun now by dying with Christ, being raised to this new life. And as we, as we live our parts, as we fill our roles as God's people, living out his new story, his, the story of the new creation which has already begun, we experience life. And so as we look toward that new life, that new future, and that new mind, we bring our focus this morning to the Lord's table, where we see 
Christ's body broken for us. Christ's blood shed for us to give us that new life. But this is not a funeral. This is a feast. Because the one who was broken, the one shed his blood, has been raised. And so when we come to eat and drink, we share in that resurrection life where we're strengthened to believe what God has said and not believe what the world says is true and utter happiness. And so I invite you as you prepare yourselves to look at this table this morning as symbols of the new life and the new future that is ours now so that it can help you have the new mind to set your mind on the things above and so that you can live with all the fullness of Christ all in all in you as you go forth from this place today. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this feast, help us to remember that it did cost a funeral, that you have, out of love, sent your Son to die for us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised him up for us, so that we not only have died to ourselves, but now we can live for you, who are our life. And we pray it in your Son's name. Amen.